0: Welcome back to The Law. I am D.K. Williams, and this is episode 33, Jacob Ellis v. Ohio. This is a 1964 case dealing with, I think, everybody's favorite topic, obscenity and the First Amendment. This is where Potter Stewart, Supreme Court Justice, in a concurrence, said defining obscenity was not easy, but he knew it when he saw it. He agreed that French director Louis Malle's 1958 film, The Lovers, was not obscene. And that's what this case is about, that movie. I have lots to say about that movie. I watched it for you guys. Of course, just for research purposes. So I would have the context of what this big deal was. I knew that compared to today's standards, this 1958 French art house movie would be mild. But I expected some level of awful salaciousness. Alas, I was sorely disappointed, and I'll tell you about it. As always, The Law with DK Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network. Always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. And remember, follow me on social media, if you're not already, and if you're so inclined. On Twitter, it's at Blue Carp. And on the podcast Facebook page, The Law with DK Williams. And love to hear from you. Check out the Facebook page, like it, rate it, comment, share, share, share. That helps the podcast uh, gain traction. Wherever you're listening, like, comment, subscribe, and like I said, share if you like. And if you feel like supporting the podcast, you can donate at paypal.me slash thelawdkwilliams. All right, let's jump into this thing. All right, the named participants. We have Nico Jacobellis. He was the manager of the Heights Art Theater in the Coventry Village neighborhood of Cleveland Heights, Ohio. He showed the film at his theater, The Lover's and was criminally charged with distributing possession and distributing obscenity under Ohio state law. He was found guilty at the trial level. The Ohio Court of Appeals upheld that conviction, and the state Supreme Court also upheld it, saying, yep, that's obscene, you're in violation of the law, and obscenity has no protection under the First Amendment. And that's still the case, even with the U.S. Supreme Court, and we'll talk about that. Ohio, the defendant, is the state of Ohio. So the question before the U.S. Supreme Court was Louis Malle's award-winning 1958 film, The Lovers, that's translated from the French, which is L'Homme, I don't know how to say it right, if it's obscene, it would not be protected by the First Amendment and Jacob Bellis' conviction would stand. If it was not obscene, it is protected by the First Amendment and the conviction has to be thrown out. This was a 6-3 decision in favor of Jacob Bellis, in favor of the movie The Lovers, that was not obscenity. But there was not a majority opinion. Six agreed that the Lovers was protected, but they couldn't agree on how. Only two justices wrote or on the plurality opinion. Then there were three separate concurrences and two separate dissents. You add them all up, you get a 6-3 decision in favor of Jacob Ellis in the movie. The plurality opinion was written by William Brennan. He was joined by Arthur Goldberg, and he's no relation, as far as I know, to legendary professional wrestler Bill Goldberg, who just went by Goldberg. Separate concurrence was written by Hugo Black, joined by William Douglas. To me, Hugo Black is the hero. He gets this right, but his concurrence isn't the main opinion. Separate concurrence by Potter Stewart, where he said, I know it when I see it. We'll talk about that. Another concurrence by Byron White. The dissents were by Chief Judge Earl Warren, who was joined by Tom C. Clark, and a separate dissent by John M. Harlan. So let's go down the Supreme Court roster like I like to do, like we're looking at the game program. Where are these people from? How did they get there? What's their height and weight? Not really that part. So, the plurality opinion. Brennan was appointed in fifty six by Eisenhower, and he was a colonel in the Army. He went to Harvard Law. And again, I bring this up because right now, the U.S. Supreme Court is an oligarchy made up entirely of Ivy League law students, or they went to law school at an Ivy League school, most of them at Harvard. And I think that's bad. I think we need more diversity. So, it's not quite so bad back here when this case was decided in sixty four. So Goldberg was appointed by JFK in 62. He went to Northwestern Law School. So at least he's not a part of the Ivy League oligarchy. Concurrent, Black was a 1937 appointee by FDR, and he went to the University of Alabama at Tuscaloosa Law School. Sweet. I knew I liked this guy, and he's a guy that nails this opinion. He was a captain in the Army. Douglas joined Black, so good for him as well. He was a 1939 appointment by FDR, went to Columbia Law School. Separate occurrence, Potter Stewart appointed in 58 by ike went to yale law another separate occurrence byron white appointed in 62 by jfk went to yale law he's a colorado undergrad played football there he was a lieutenant commander in the navy separate descent warren appointed in 1953 by ike he was a first lieutenant in the army and he went to cal berkeley law school so at least that's a state school and he was joined by clark in his descent who was appointed in 1949 by truman who went to texas university of texas at austin law school we don't have that anymore And he was in the Coast Guard. One more dissent. Finally, my man John Marshall Harlan II was appointed to the court in 1955 by Ike and went to New York Law School. All right. So those—that's the roster of the judges, the justices, and their decisions. The facts: Nico Jacobellus, charged with two counts one possessing, one exhibiting an obscene film. Violation of Ohio statute. He was convicted and ordered by a judge of the Cayuga County Court of Common Pleas to pay fines of $500 on the first count, which was the possession, and $2,000 on the second count exhibiting the obscene material. So that's $2,500 in early 60s money, which is $21,000 Roughly today. If the fines weren't paid, he was going to be sentenced to the workhouse. Some sort of work you would have to do. So he was convicted in Cuyahoga County. Again, I cannot be the only person who immediately thought of a song. Last week in episode 32, we dealt with Taylor versus Saginaw out of Saginaw, Michigan. That's the tire chalking case in the Sixth Circuit. And I thought of the Lefty Frizzell song of the same name. Saginaw, Michigan. Cuyahoga, what'd you think of? I immediately thought of the REM song from the 1986 album, Life's Rich Pageant, named Cuyahoga. I'll link to it in the show notes. All right, legal analysis. The Supreme Court reversed the conviction by ruling that the film was not obscene and so was constitutionally protected and Jacob Ellis couldn't be convicted for violating obscenity laws. The court did not agree on any particular rationale because there's four different opinions uh, in favor of Jacob Ellis. This is why Hugo Black is right and he was joined by Douglas. He reiterated his well-known view that the First Amendment does not permit censorship of any kind. Why is that so difficult? Thank you, Justice Hugo Black and William Douglas for being on the right side of this. That's still not currently. That is not the standard of the U.S. Supreme Court. Perhaps it would be if another case got up there. But it's not. And we'll talk about what it is. Chief Justice dissented. And he said that Ohio's action was consistent with the Supreme Court's earlier decision where they talked about obscenity and tried to define it. Nobody can define it. They even admit they cannot define it. That's why Potter Stewart said, I know it when I see it because I can't define it. And the most famous opinion, Stewart's concurrence, where he said that the whole part of his quotation is, I shall not today attempt. Further, to define the kinds of material I understand to be embraced within that shorthand description. That's hardcore pornography. He really means obscenity, but that, anyway. I can't define it. And perhaps I could never succeed in intelligibly doing so. You could not. But I know it when I see it, and the motion picture involved in this case is not that. So he's like, no, I know when I see it, this is just a movie, this is fine. So the motion picture, The Lovers, La Amant, it's le, then A-M-A-N-T-S, Amant. I've, anyway, that's the original French. Found obscene in Ohio by the state courts. All right, and I watched this. I had to buy the DVD. It's like I'm in the Flintstones or something. I'm using that ancient DVD technology from the medieval period to see this 90-minute film and do a little research on it. The controversy wasn't really about vivid sex scenes because there weren't any. The controversy was basically about how this woman was married. She had a young daughter. She was having an affair with one guy and then met a new guy and had sex with him after she'd met him less than a day and ran off with him and she didn't feel bad about it. That was the controversy. That was the salaciousness that made so many find this film obscene. The sex scenes near the end of the movie, when she hooked up with the new guy, show maybe two glimpses of breast and that's it. The Lovers was Louis Maul's second successful film. He wanted to make a lot more. The stars French actress Jean Moreau, I'm probably butchering the name. She plays Jean. She, her character has the first name, as she really does. Characters character is Jean Tournier. And as IMDb describes the film, she is saddled with a dull husband and a foolish lover. A woman has an affair with a stranger. Not only that, however, she runs off with the guy at the end of the movie. All right, so one hour and six minutes. Into this 90-minute movie, I'll give you some highlights. Remember, this is very artsy. And part of the message of the movie is it's criticizing these rich bourgeois French people and how they're liars and hypocrites and basically have the white privilege, they would never say that, but using modern parlance, of being able to sit around and be bored and fool around on one another. Or at least the main female character does. Here's a little narration. Love can be born in a single glance. In an instant, Jean felt all shame and restraint fall away. So that's the type of thing we're dealing with here. More narration. She couldn't hesitate. There is no resisting happiness. So at this point, Jean, the married woman who's having an affair with a second guy, is now with the third guy. They're walking further out into the fields and the tall grass, up to their heads. There's violin music. And this is like late at night. She says to him, is this a land you invented for me to lose myself in? Yeah, no one talks like that. Very artsy, very pretentious. But it's daring. It's groundbreaking. The acting is good. The filming is beautiful. And they're pushing the edge for the time. 1958. No doubt about it. They keep walking. This is before they've hooked up. They cross a little bridge over a stream. And I get this part. With all the subtlety of an Oliver Stone movie, she says, Henri, that's her husband, Henri sets these traps. And so they're out of stream and there's a fish trap. Henri sets these traps. So the guy pulls it up. It's got like four or five fish in it. They look at each other. She nods solemnly. And he lets the fish out of the cage. Ye get it? The fish are free, just like Jean. They're out of the cage, Henri set for them. So these two finally kiss, and it's very definitely a closed mouth kiss. They may be French, but this kiss is not then they walk over to a little rowboat on this stream they climb in they lay down next to each other in this wooden rowboat which is about the least comfortable place i could ever imagine to lay down with someone that field with that tall grass would have been 10 times better place to lay down they start making out in this wooden rowboat with a wooden bench kind of acting as a pillow and i'm like sheesh that's got to be uncomfortable for both of them but the violin music continues unabated unconcerned with the hard uncomfortable rowboat they drift out of frame into the shadows. And the camera stays put, and I imagine this is supposed to indicate that now they're getting it on in this uncomfortable rowboat. Now we see them in what I think is supposed to be a post-coitus moment. They're touching each other's faces, staring lovingly into each other's eyes, eyes neither one of them had seen 24 hours earlier. They drift to get out of the boat, and when they get out of the boat, they leave it without tying it to anything. I mean, come on. That's just irresponsible. They go back to the big house. All right, so at the big house, this is where she lives with her rich husband. The guy she's having an affair with is there, too with one of her female friends and now this third guy this third guy got into the picture because her car broke down on the way to the house he picked her up so when they walk back to the big house they have a dalmatian on a short chain i'm not sure if that's another symbol the dog is limited to a chain just like his own i don't know but it's not cool to keep a dog on a short chain like that third guy says let's go as in let's run off together which seems a bit excessive and ridiculous the y'all just met she says i have to change he says i love you and i love Catherine. Catherine is their daughter her daughter about nine or ten years old he says i love her and he didn't know she existed 40 seconds earlier he didn't know jean had a daughter this is i guess an example of how people say really stupid things when they're feeling that glorious infatuation so at one hour 16 minutes into the movie we have the first nudity of any kind when we see a breast then it's morning and he says we should go she says you're so beautiful you are my love you are so beautiful yeah, she says it twice. I've always known you. I've known only you. This is ridiculous. But it's, it's believable from these two people. She says, we have to go. And I'm like, what is going to happen when you move out of this mansion? and into his little flat. I mean, I don't know where he lives, but she doesn't either, and that's the point. They get in the tub together, and she says, shh, you're going to wake everybody up, because everybody's supposed to get up at four o'clock in the morning to go fishing, except for this third guy. He wasn't going to go fishing. They get back into bed. After I thought they were going to get dressed so they could leave, but no, they have to get back in bed. She says, we'll sleep together always. I take care of you. My life for yours. We'll be fine. You'll see. And I apologize for the horrendous French accent. They finally get the wake-up call at 4 a.m. So everybody in the house is getting woken up by the butler. Guy's in the bathroom. She walks in. She says, what's wrong, my love? He says, I hate all this. All what? All this. These footsteps. These voices. All this domestic hubbub. This house. Your husband. Your friends. Your life. She says, you hate it all? Even me? He doesn't say anything. Then he says, if we'd left last night, we'd be far away now. On a new morning. She says, it's still our night. And when our morning comes, we'll be far from here then hurry up. Then let me go. Never. You get the idea. At this point, Jean's girlfriend, Maggie, which we would say Maggie, sees the two of them come out of one bedroom. Maggie says to her, well, well, I'm speechless. Did you know him before? And Maggie, Maggie is kind of smiling like, all right, girl, where to go? Because that's how these people are. Jean says, shut up, Maggie. You do not understand. You never will. Now Raoul comes out. That's the guy she was having an affair with. So her husband's Henri, Raoul is the guy she's having an affair with, and this third guy. And it's obvious that they're like together. They're like leaving the house, holding hands. Maggie to Raoul says, she's really amazed me this time. Raoul starts to go after them. Maggie says, don't be silly, Raoul. You are not her husband. So the two are just driving off. Big estate, right? So there's a big driveway. Henri is in the front yard, and he just sees them drive off. And I'm thinking, well, Jean, what about Catherine? You have a daughter in the house. I guess they're going to think about that later, which is part of the point of the movie. They don't think about things. So then we have a scene with the two lovers leaving. Maggie, Maggie, and Raoul are on the lawn with Henri, and they watch them drive away slowly. The guy says to her while they're driving off, "Why are you crying?" And there's no visual evidence that she's crying. Uh, whatever. She doesn't answer. He just says, "Night." I wish it were always night. What? There's some weird French artsy nonsense. He says, Where shall we go? I think it's a good question. You know, you're leaving. You should know where you're going. She says, It doesn't matter. I'll go anywhere with you. I think it does matter, actually. So this is the closing narration. They're driving off. They set off on a long journey, aware of its uncertainty, unsure of ever recapturing the happiness of that first night. Already in the treacherous hours of dawn, Jean had her doubts. She was afraid. But she regretted nothing. Then the title card, Fiend. Which means finished. That's it. This was the movie that was found obscene. No doubt. Again, it was Pushing the Edge in 1958... But it's beautifully acted, it's beautifully shot, even if it's pretentious and silly in some part. There is an underlying indictment of the bourgeoisie as being petty and silly and pretentious and hypocritical. But to say it lacked any artistic value and appealed only to the period interest is just nonsense. And this is the film that Nico Jacob Ellis was found guilty of possessing and exhibiting as obscene. In the statute... The Ohio statue where he was convicted requires a knowing statement. You had to know you were possessing and exhibiting an obscene film. But when no one knows what a, an obscene, what any obscene material is, not even the U.S. Supreme Court, how is a shop owner or a movie theater proprietor supposed to know what's obscene? The Supreme Court doesn't know. How is he supposed to know? He can't. And so since the Supreme Court doesn't know what's likely to happen is, most people aren't going to carry anything even close, thus chilling speech. Thankfully, the Supreme Court found the lovers not obscene and they addressed that. So in the plurality opinion written by Brennan... He starts off, the dispositive question is whether the state courts properly found that the motion picture involved a French film called Les Amants, The Lovers, was obscene and hence not entitled to the protection for free expression that is guaranteed by the First and Fourteenth Amendments. We conclude that the film is not obscene and that the judgment must be, accordingly, be reversed. I want to do the French accent for the whole thing now, but I will not subject you to that. And just by way of reference, as of today, 2019, the film has a 7.3 out of 10 rating on IMDb and 90% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. So it's got its fans. And it's, and it's not a bad movie. It's just very different. It's, it's, it's from a different time. Plurality opinion goes on. Motion pictures are within the ambit of the constitutional guarantees of freedom of speech and of the press. Yeah, I would think so. But we held, the Supreme Court, that obscenity is not subject to those guarantees. Application of an obscenity law to suppress a motion picture just requires ascertainment of the dim and uncertain line that often separates obscenity from constitutionally protected expression. Here's a problem. If obscenity isn't protected, which it's not. not, It wasn't protected then. It's not protected now. Just in this particular case, they said this movie wasn't obscene. If obscenity isn't protected, whatever is disfavored political speech will be declared obscene. That's certainly a very major risk, and it's happened throughout history. This ain't rocket science. And so-called conservatives, when we talk about these issues, somehow all of a sudden love government telling people what to do hey don't take my guns but damn it those people over there making dirty movies you better shut them down and put them in jail it's just ridiculous shows a complete lack of understanding of limited government, and even the Constitution. So the Supreme Court has to decide if this is obscene or not, right? Are they going to have to do this for every single movie or book or whatever? The court says, It has been suggested that this is a task in which our court need not involve itself. We are told that the determination whether a particular motion picture, book, or other work of expression is obscene can be treated as a purely factual judgment, on which a jury's verdict is all but conclusive, or that in any event, the decision can be left essentially to state and lower federal courts. With this court exercising only a limited review, such as that needed to determine whether the ruling below is supported by sufficient evidence, the suggestion is appealing since it would lift from our shoulders a difficult, recurring, and unpleasant task, but we cannot accept it. Such an abnegation rejection of judicial supervision in this field would be inconsistent with our duty to uphold the constitutional guarantees, since it is only obscenity that is excluded from the constitutional protection, the question whether a particular work is obscene necessarily implicates an issue of constitutional law. All right, they discussed the criticism or the concern about courts becoming censorship boards, which some of the dissent mentions, and having to review lots of films or art and making a decision on them. And they discuss it. Well, yeah, we have to do that basically. Actually, courts won't be censorship boards if, I don't know, they don't censor anything. If you film or record an actual criminal act, prosecute the act. You can make the recording of it a sentencing amplifier, like an aggravator. That should be it. That means nothing written could ever be prosecuted for obscenity because writing is all made up. You're not, nothing is actually happening. No one is actually being murdered. The actual sex isn't happening. Somebody's just writing it down, making it up. You can write about a murder, but no one is murdered. You murder someone and film it, okay, prosecute that. And this is about books as well. There's a long history of banning books or obscenity. Tropic of Cancer, 1934 novel by Henry Miller, was banned in the U.S. for its depiction of sexuality as obscene, but it was mere words. So, that concern about banning books through and just words because obscenity is not protected is real and it has happened and it can happen. All right, so back to this opinion in Louis Moll's movie. Supreme Court says, hence, we we reaffirm the principle that, in obscenity cases, as in all others involving rights derived from the First Amendment, this court cannot avoid making an independent constitutional judgment on the facts of the case as to whether the material involved is constitutionally protected. So they are setting themselves up and the entire court system in general to be censorship boards, just as Black in his concurrence is correct. The First Amendment protects all expression, obscene or not. Not what the court decides, but Black is correct. Obscenity cannot be defined as a legal matter. You just end up with Stewart deciding because he knows it when he sees it, although he said this wasn't it. But he knew he he had to look at it. I know when I see it, this is okay. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So if the court has to determine if a movie in this case is obscene or not, how do they do it? court has an answer for you. The question of the proper standard for making this determination has been the subject of much discussion and controversy since our decision in Roth seven years ago, recognizing that the test for obscenity enunciated there, whether to the average person applying contemporary community standards, dominant theme of the material taken as a whole appeals to period interest, is not perfect. Yeah, that's putting it mildly. It's not just imperfect. It's a completely useless standard with no way to apply it without complete subjectivity. And one group of 12 would have a completely different viewpoint than the next random group of 12. And with the internet, this community standards issue, this is still an issue today. What what does community standards mean? With the internet, it's stupid. The Arkadelphia, Arkansas, my birthplace, if they think something violates their community standards, they can't keep it off the internet for the rest of the world or for the rest of the United States does Mayberry have different community standards than Manhattan? Yeah, so what? Manhattan can't make Mayberry watch a movie or to show it, and Mayberry can't stop Manhattan from watching it or showing it. They should not anyway. The notion that either can do that or should be able to do that is totalitarian. So the court in this case says that community standards means a national standard, so they avoid that problem. So they are using the Roth standard, even though it says community standards are really applying national standards. In a later case, in 1973, Miller versus California, community standards were redefined as meaning actual community standards and not national standards. This is still evolving. The obscenity prosecutions, however, have gone way down, I think just just as a practical matter, and I'll have those numbers for you in a bit. So the likelihood of an obscenity prosecution going up the U.S. Supreme Court goes way down because they don't have nearly as many cases to prosecute. Supreme Court goes on in the plurality opinion. We would reiterate, however, our recognition in Roth, that other Supreme Court case where they laid out that ridiculously unworkable standard, that obscenity is excluded from the constitutional protection only because it is utterly without redeeming social importance. Who's going to decide that? Who's going to decide if something is utterly without redeeming social importance? The government? Yeah. No. The First Amendment doesn't say anything about deciding if something is redeeming or not. Lots of things aren't redeeming, at least to somebody So what? That's what the First Amendment is for. This guy doesn't think it's redeeming. This guy thinks it's brilliant. The court continues. The portrayal of sex, for example, in art, literature, and scientific works, is not itself sufficient reason to deny material the constitutional protection of freedom of speech and press. Well, good thing that's true, especially for the Christians, because the Bible has more than its share of sex in it. But all of these standards, talking about social importance, artistic value, something that advocates an idea, are completely subjective tests that depend entirely on the person or the group of people making that decision. But freedom means we each get to make that decision for ourselves. I won't read or watch some things because they're too stupid, boring, or not funny. I get to decide that for myself. Court tries to make more sense of this unworkable standard, and they say, a work cannot be proscribed unless it is utterly Without social importance, all right, utterly without social importance. Again, completely subjective standard, no practical application. Because one person or a group of people don't like it, means they don't have to watch it or read it or listen to it. The end, problem solved. But no, that's not what the court did. They're trying to define something that's undefinable, and they're throwing out all these phrases, none of which is any more helpful than the last one. As I like to say, as you guys know, freedom is dangerous because someone might watch something you don't want them to watch. Well, that ain't no concern of yours gladys kravitz mind your own business or as casey musgraves says in her song mind your own biscuits and life will be gravy i'll link to that song in the notes everyone should listen to it so back to this community standard phrase in this supreme court case in 64 the plurality decision says we do not see how any local definition of the community could properly be employed in delineating the area of expression that is protected by the federal constitution yeah that's absolutely right they go on a standard based on a particular local community would have the intolerable consequence of denying some sections of the country access to material they're deemed acceptable, which in others might be considered offensive to prevailing community standards of decency. That part's right. A community standard doesn't work, even though that's what we allegedly have now. And this whole community standards thing is even more true of the internet. The court says, We, the court, is confronted with the task of reconciling the rights of such communities with the rights of individuals no communities don't have rights neither do corporations but the individuals within the community or the corporation who comprise the community or the corporation do and if five people want to write a book and then form a corporation to help write it or publish it or set up a business to write it that book cannot be banned just because those five individuals incorporated it's a frivolous notion Yet, it is the notion behind the hysterical criticism of the Citizens United case. We talked about in episode two, so go check that out again. Communities don't have rights. They have authority. States don't have rights. They have authority. Governments don't have rights. They have authority. They have power. They have the power to punish thieves, for example. But a community doesn't have the right to punish that's not what a right is that's not how rights work and when we use the word improperly like this and you see it all over in popular media tv radio we get a society where lots of uneducated people through no fault of their own think a right is a synonym for a good idea or good policy and then they think health care for everybody is a good policy therefore they call it a right and that's not right it's wrong so let's politely correct people on this individuals have rights, governments have authority, and nobody has the right to be given anything. Not even if the government decides that giving certain people is a good policy, that doesn't make it a right. It just means the government has the authority to do it, and they're decided it's a good idea. Court goes on, we thus reaffirm the position taken in Roth, that other case, to the effect that the constitutional status of an allegedly obscene work must be determined on the basis of a national standard, it is after all a national constitution we are expounding indeed. And again though, I think that that was changed later. So now we are back to some kind of community standard. But what about the kids, Dave? The Supreme Court gives us an answer. We recognize the legitimate and indeed exigent interest of states and localities throughout the nation in preventing the dissemination of material deemed harmful to children. and let me stop for a second. they talk about interest of states. That's a better way of saying it, not the right of states. But that interest does not justify a total suppression of such material, the effect of which would be to reduce the adult population to reading only what is fit for children. State and local authorities might well consider whether their objectives in this area would be better served by laws aimed specifically at preventing distribution of objectionable material to children rather than at totally prohibiting its dissemination. There you go. We do it with alcohol. We do it with cigarettes. They do it with magazines. Back when magazines were a thing. They go on, they say the judgment of whether or not something is obscene or not must be reviewed under the strict standard applicable in determining the scope of the expression protected by the Constitution. You guys know what I think about the strict standard and the other standards that they have. They're nonsense. As long as they're going to say the standard means Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, then that standard is correct. The Constitution does not say Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech unless people in power think it's obscene. The whole obscenity standard is wrong. It's baseless. It's another judicial amendment to the Bill of Rights, which as you guys know, is more properly referred to as the Bill of Restrictions because it doesn't give individuals rights. It restricts the government from infringing on rights that exist. Court goes on. We have viewed the film and we conclude that it is not obscene within the standards enunciated in Roth. Oh, okay. That's great. No, it is. I mean, I'm glad they found it wasn't obscene, but here they are. They're viewing the film as a censoring board, to decide if it's protected by the First Amendment or not. And that's it's insane to me. So I'm down with Justice Black's concurrence, he says, because he agrees that it's not obscene and the conviction should be thrown out. But he says, my reason for reversing the Ohio State Court is that I think the conviction of appellant or anyone for exhibiting a motion picture abridges freedom of the press as safeguarded by the First Amendment. So he doesn't think any analysis is necessary beyond, is that a movie? Okay, that's it. Showing motion pictures are protected the end. Thank you. We don't need a judicial board of censors to watch it and tell us whether or not it's obscene. So he thinks obscenity, however it's defined, as and it's impossible to define, as the Supreme Court even acknowledges, whatever they decide it is, is protected anyway, according to Hugo Black, right on. And this is where Stewart's famous concurrence comes in, in this case. He says, this is the whole thing. I have reached the conclusion that under the 1st and 14th amendments quick aside we've talked about incorporation in the 14th amendment has been read to make the bill of rights all applicable to the states not technically all of them yet cuz they're doing them like one at a time but most of them have been incorporated to the states. So that under the First and Fourteenth Amendments, criminal laws in this area, obscenity, are constitutionally limited to hardcore pornography. Okay, let's throw in another word, another phrase we can't define. Stewart says, I shall not today attempt to further define the kinds of material I understand to be embraced within that shorthand description, and perhaps I can never succeed in intelligibly doing so. You can't. But I know it when I see it, and the motion picture involved in this case is not that. Thanks, Justice Stewart. But I know it when I see it has zero practical application. It would require Justice Stewart to review everything and let us know if he sees it or not. I mean, that's ridiculous, right? So it's just another reason Justice Black, and Douglas joined him, is correct. So the Chief Justice at the time, Brennan and Justice Clark, dissent, and they say, We are called upon to reconcile the right of the nation and of the states to maintain a decent society. Excuse me while I throw up in my mouth. We already discussed how governments don't have rights. They have authority or they have power. And letting the government decide what constitutes decency is the only real obscenity in this entire case. You want the liars, the thieves, the whoremongers in Congress to dictate what is decent? I think not. The defense also says, very haughtily, while we try to define obscenity, those who profit from the commercial exploitation of obscenity would continue to ply their trade unmolested. Yeah, they would. Freedom is dangerous. Freedom means some adults might decide voluntarily to make a movie you find disgusting. Freedom means they can. It also means you don't have to watch it. It means you can condemn it. Now, if you condemn it, what happens sometimes is you risk giving it publicity and informing others about something they otherwise may not have even been aware of, much less wanted to see. And this happened to me in law school when The Last Temptation of Christ came out. I never would have gone to see that movie. But when I heard the outcry about why no one should see it, I had to go see it and it was boring. Louis Mall later said in an interview about the controversy surrounding his movie, The Lovers, he said the movie got tremendous publicity and he was very, very happy when the Catholic Church condemned it. If your goal is for people not to see something, sometimes condemning it serves the exact opposite purpose. And that's it. Jacob Bellis versus Ohio. Nico Jacob conviction for possessing and showing Louis Moll's film, The Lovers, was overturned and the film was declared not obscene and therefore protected under the First Amendment. And we're all glad. Now, the court still holds obscenity is not protected under the First Amendment. So states can make a law abridging the right to free speech. They can abridge your right to do something obscene, which is undefinable. That's the problem. I mean, it's probably a problem even if you could define it. But the fact that you can't define it means it means nothing, which means it's arbitrary, which means one state can find something obscene and therefore banned and another state or another jury in the same state could come to a different conclusion. So it's useless. It's basically it's virtue signaling. We don't know what obscenity is, but it's bad and you can't have it. And that's nonsense. Justice Black's concurrent says all expression is protected and he's right on point and that should be the law. Alas, it is not. Now, as I mentioned a little while ago, obscenity prosecutions have gone way down. I think U.S. attorneys are realizing it's not a good use of resources. They're getting harder and harder to get convictions. And they got like real crime to try to prosecute. And not only real crime, but drug crimes too. That's a big deal to them. So obscenity prosecutions are down. They had 74 of them in federal court only. I don't have the state numbers. But in federal court, they had 74 prosecutions for obscenity in 1990. In 2000, they had 34. And in 2009, they had 6. So that's a good trend and hopefully that will continue. Mind your own business and life will be gravy. I am DK Williams and this has been The Law, episode 33. Jacob Ellis versus Ohio. We're brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Holler at me with your comments. I want to hear good, bad, indifferent ideas, suggestions. You can hit me up on Twitter at Blue Carp and on Facebook.com slash Blue Carp and on the Facebook page for the podcast. So if you just look for The Law with DK Williams, you'll find the page. Donations to keep this podcast going are welcome at paypal.me slash thelawdkwilliams. Freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously.